This to me sounds like being on the train, leaving Narita Station in Tokyo, heading to um, heading to Tokyo Station. And this was actually when I first, well, when I first and only time went to Japan. Uh, this is what I was listening to leaving the station. Uh, this is Kishibachi. He is trained in, in uh, jazz violin. Uh, he's done some film scores as well, has a degree in film score production. Um, singer, songwriter. This is a song, philosophizing it, chemicalizing it. And this is what I was listening to when I went to Japan about three years ago. And I heard this coming out of the tunnel in the train and seeing the Japanese countryside for the first time. And it's amazing what's great about music in the same way that wine or in the case today what we're drinking, we have memories tied in to, to a lot of this stuff. And to me, this song will always be the Japanese countryside. That's awesome. I was really hoping that this was gonna be, you know, like, Frederick Nietzsche's Ubermanch set the violin with the name of the song, then mixed in with some, you know, chemistry in some capacity. But um, but it still works. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Adam Pataldo. The gentleman waxing poetic about his time in Japan was Manny Gonzalez. This is uh, Bottom of the Bottle. Again, we almost forget to introduce ourselves every time because, I don't know, we just, we, we, we just do. It's our we, thing. Yeah, it is. You know, we explore the world of, of wine and today, um, sake, you know, basically a couple bottles at a time. Manny might be going uh, for like, I don't know, 14 bottles at a time. He's got a lot over there today, but he likes he likes sake. Because it's sake, right? Not sake. Sake is the Exactly. So we call it sake. Uh, in Japan, it's actually called Nihonshu. Nihon is basically just means Japan. And shu is beverage or Japanese beverage. Um, it is the national drink of Japan. It is an historic drink and it's super awesome. So there you go. I'm actually pouring myself a little bit of some Hunraku Yamaha. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Pour away, man. I mean, I got, I got friends who say that we do this only so that we have an excuse to day drink. So um, they're not wrong. My, my excuse to day drink is typically 1230, and that usually works pretty well for me. It's about that time. It's about that time. Yeah, so I'm excited because we're doing sake today, and um, sake is one of my favorite beverages. Um, it's something that I didn't quite understand for many years. I didn't drink it right, um, and you know, when you when you not just get to, to go to a brewery, which is great, but when you actually dive into it, it can be as complex and nuanced as wine. We're seeing a big boom in, in sake consumption, especially in the United States, um, places like Australia in Europe, and uh, this is also International Sake Month. Um, so I thought we should be we should be kind of rounding out October with some sake. Hey, full disclosure, everyone. I jokingly say every every couple of weeks that I'm not the expert. Right? Don't listen. You listen to Manny. Uh, this is the one time he's probably going to agree with me. Uh, sake is not my thing. I know a little bit about it. Uh, I, I have to. You know, I work in sales. We sell sake. I have to know something about it. But it, it, it is not my, it's not my, it wasn't my first passion type thing. Sake for me was when I was 21 in college, uh, putting it over two chopsticks, over a Budweiser, 
that was heated up and then pounding the table until it fell in and then chugging it. That's what it was for me until very, very recently. I should be ashamed to admit that, but I'm surprisingly not, probably because I left my shame somewhere in college too, probably with that um, shot glasses. <laughs> you know, doing that, <laughs> doing the sake bomb is also done in Japan. Um, it's a pretty big drinking culture we'll talk about in Japan. They do a lot of drinking games. So, you know, don't be ashamed about the sake bomb because they're delicious. You know. also, Again, there's no shame left in me. It's gone. It's, <laughs> it's my crazy. shame, my dignity, my integrity is probably somewhere out there too. It's, I, you know, didn't, you grow up Catholic? didn't you grow up Catholic? Shouldn't there be more shame? Isn't that part of the, uh, that, one of, that, one of the commandments? I separate the guilt from the shame. Personally, it's a way to allow me to function every day. I mean, do you want me to be able to get out of bed in the morning? Well, but, yeah, but the thing is, you say you know nothing about sake. You have gone through sake training, and you have passed a sake exam. And also, I, I want to point out, because Adam always says I'm the expert, but um, Adam is also a French wine scholar. Adam has passed his French wine scholar exam. I meant to say it earlier. I keep on forgetting every week. Kudos to you for doing it. That's awesome. And you've also passed the same exam that I passed for sake. There's one sake exam passed this part of the WSET that I took and I failed twice. So I'm not that much of an expert. The proof once again that while certifications are nice and those classes are great because you do learn a lot in them. Whether or not you pass the test doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> exactly. Some people test well. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to slam the, 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 the classes or the certifications because they are very helpful. They were very helpful to me in, in many ways and so on. But if, you have, if you're having a bad day when you take that test and you miss by a point, did you really not learn anything? Come on. Like, I will say, in my defense, the first exam... This happened to myself and four other colleagues. We didn't see the last page. And actually, our pages were stuck together. Um, and so we didn't open the last page. So, you know, the, and, second, the second time I failed was on me. I just didn't, I just didn't study. You know, and if you had opened that page, not only would you have passed probably, but that's probably where my shame was hiding. So I, the world <laughs> would be a lot different. I, uh, I didn't want to see that. So I purposely left that page closed because... Hearing about your shame is bad enough, but to see it on paper is just kind of sure. sad. What can you tell us a little bit of what sake? I mean, I'll come into the story, but like, sure. um, in kind of a layman's perspective. So the the well the the couple things that I take differently, and I, I actually I almost did this. I almost ran it by you, but it came to me really late last last night, and so it was too late to kind of do. I was going to pull uh, a burgundy because I'm not a, a sake expert and relate kind of how I think Burgundy and sake actually have a lot in common, you know, connecting some dots, because we have focused so much on France. Um, you know, sake has terroir. Uh, it's more, from what I believe, it, it's the water is, you know, um, you know the, and is really important. The type of rice you're using, depending on the spot in, in Japan you're in. And then also, too, uh, process-wise, as far as the fermentation goes, uh, it's it's not a, it, we're not it's kind of a double process 
my accent's gonna come out here. We're converting starch to sugar before we get alcohol. So it's more of a brew than it is a, a, a traditional fermentation. And, and also there's these different layers of, um, you know, you'll see them, uh, Hanjozo, Junmai, Daiginjo, Junmai Daiginjo, uh, all, all these different things, which don't correlate specifically to like Vin de France, you know, regional AOC, village AOC, Premier Crew, Grand Crew, and so on. But the there's a similarity there. So if you can understand kind of the European wine system and how they classify things and related a little bit, I think you can understand sake as well. It's, it's not, it's more of a language barrier than it is your ability to understand it. And my dog totally disagrees with me and it's why she's freaking out right <laughs> I mean, I think, I think you're both right. You know, that there, um, no, you're absolutely right that there is terroir to sake. It is, uh, I think it's actually very comparable to to Burgundy um, in many ways because we talk about terroir with Burgundy, that sense of place. And you're right, it is the water that creates um, the terroir of sake because that's the main ingredient in sake. Uh, you know, a couple myths to dispel about sake, it is not rice wine. Um, the process is different. Uh, wine is based on fruits and fruits alone. So you can't make rice wine. Technically, you can't make um, corn wine, you know, you can't make meat wine, you, uh, but you could make avocado wine, uh, which has been a lifelong dream of mine to open up an avocado farm in Spain and make avocado wine. You technically could, well, uh, maybe there's not enough sugar, but it is a fruit, so at least that's the, the main part. And the process of making wine is relatively easy. You know, if you were, let's say, in the seventh, 700 or 7,000 BC or, um, or 5,000 BC, and you had some grapes and you stepped on your grapes, the yeast in your feet, also you, would take those sugars and convert them into alcohol. Sake is very different. It's more like beer. And although wine, well, wine was made first, um, almost unquestionably it was made first because it was easier to do. You can take your grapes or your fruit and you can let it sit and ferment and you can just leave it and do your own thing as a farmer, um, as a hunter-gatherer. But brewing is a very different process. And so we got to convert those starches to sugars. I think I'm getting better at it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's almost starch. Starch, you know. yeah. Starch. Actually, let's back up a little bit and let's talk about the general process and then I'll go into some of the history because I think right. the history is really cool. So you start with rice. Um, and in, in uh, sake, it's a specific type of rice called uh, japanica. And it's the rice that you find in Japan. It's a short grain rice. Um, it's not necessarily table rice. You can make sake from table rice, but every region, every what we call prefecture, uh, think of that like the states. There are actually eight regions in Japan and there are 47 prefectures. So you think of like New England as a region and then we have the states in New England or the Southwest in the United States, and we have, you know, California, Arizona, um, New Mexico is the Southwest, those, those places there. It's the same idea. So you have 47 prefectures in Japan, 46 of them make sake. Um, every region, every prefecture has different water source. They have different rice that they use. And rice is not necessarily like the grapes where one rice is going to produce a uh, dramatically different style of sake. 
Uh, some people will say that's the case, but for the most part, it's really not true. Um, if there are differences between you know, one rice grain versus another, it's how it absorbs water. And if there are flavor uh, profiles that are different, they're really minor. So it's not like Sauvignon Blanc versus Pinot Grigio versus Chardonnay. The, the nuances are really, really small. The key ingredient is the water. So we start with our rice, and then we do something called polishing. And what we're doing with polishing is we're removing the outer husk. Um, basically, all the, um, the fats, the lipids, the amino acids, everything that is good for you about rice, we want to get rid of, and we want to go to the center. And in the center is something called chumpaku, and this is the heart of the rice. This is where all of that starch is sleeping. <laughs> all the starch is sleeping and resting, waiting to be woken up. Um, and on how you polish your sake depends on the style. So if you polish it less, and something we would call maybe a 70% a polish, meaning we're removing 30% of the outer husk, you typically get sakis that have a lot of um, umami to it. There's, they're mushroomy. Uh, the fruit you have are kind of more of like papaya, ripe or overripe melon. When you polish to 60% to 50%, meaning you're removing 40 to 50% of your outer husk, you have a style called ginjo. Um, and this is where you find sakis that have more of a uh, underripe melon or strawberry. They become a little more floral. And then 50% on down is a style called daiginjo. And this is where you get super delicate, clean, crisp style sakes. Can we can we stop there for a second? I think this is yeah. this always confused me until recently. The polishing level, and you you did say it, but I just in case someone missed it, when we say we're polishing to sixty percent or we're polishing to seventy, but whatever, we're not actually we're not taking off seventy percent of the husk. We're actually taking off thirty percent. So the number that you're using is how much we're leaving about how much we're taking off, right? Exactly, and, and thank you for pointing that out because that actually confused me, you know, going through, you know, learning about sake. It's a 40% polish. It, does that mean there's 60% left or did you take 60% away? So it is confusing, but but that's kind of what it is. And it's called uh, semibuai. Uh, you have for um, a couple different grades of sake for premium sake, you have one that's called junmai, which all of our sakes are junmai sakes that we have today. Um, junmai means pure rice, meaning our ingredient is just rice, water, yeast, and then koji, which is what helps wake those, those sugars we'll talk about in a minute. And that is actually probably the most traditional style of sake. Um, you have another style called honjozo. There's one difference between a junmai sake and honjozo, and I'll talk about that in a second because it ties into to the production. Um, after we polish, creating either a basic junmai or a honjozo or a junmai ginjo or a junmai daiginjo, getting lower and lower in terms of what we have left, after that we soak the rice. Uh, we, we wash it and then soak it. Not we, because I don't do it, but they do. So they wash and they soak the rice. And this is when you start integrating the flavor of your local water. Uh, water is really important in sake brewing. It is one of the most important parts. Um, in the same way that it is important with beer and it's important with whiskey. Rice does not have a lot of moisture to it. It's dry. It's a dried grain. Uh, so you can't just crush it and make sake or make rice juice or rice water. You know, so you need to bring that in. And depending on where you're located, you're going to have a vastly different style of sake because of that water source. For example, two of the sakes I have are from Niigata. Niigata's in... Uh, 
kind of the north west of Japan on the Sea of Japan. And because of where they're located and the way the trade winds work, they get about, first of all, it's mountainous. Um, it's the start of what they call the Japanese Alps. Um, and they get a ton of snow. They get about 30 feet of snow every single year. And because Japan is a thin country, it does not take long for that snow water, snow melt to get out to the ocean. You typically don't develop a lot of minerality in the sake. Um, the water is extremely soft. So for example, New York City has soft water. The hardest water in Japan is half as soft as New York or it's, it's wow. yeah. So it's, it's a real delicate water source th throughout Japan. But if you are where you're located, uh, your sake, Wataribune, comes from Ibaraki, which is just the prefecture north of Tokyo. It's more of a uh, spring river water. It picks up more minerals. And so you get a sake that has a little more richness to it. There's more of a, a coating of the palate to it. So that water source is really important. They rinse off the, uh, the powder from polishing and nothing is wasted, by the way. They take that powder and they put that in the cosmetics. It's called nuka. They make crackers out of it. They feed it to cattle. Um, so everything is used, which is really cool. Then the, the uh, rice is washed and then soaked. Uh, for And the soaking is timed, uh, sometimes down to a, a specific seconds for, for specific sakes. So there's actually somebody looking at a stopwatch while they're soaking in ice cold water. From that point, they steam the rice. They don't boil it because boiling would just make it a paste. And um, the uh, steaming process keeps the rice dry. They separate it. And by the way, when the brewing starts, it'll actually start in November, so we're in October, it is ambient temperature. There's no heat in the breweries. So if it is February or January and it is 10 degrees outside or five degrees outside, it's only about 35 degrees in the brewery. It's really cold. The only room that has temperature control is the next important room. It's called the Koji room. It's about 100 degrees and about 98% humidity. So to go from like 40 degrees, 35 degrees to this, it's, it's super oppressive and you're in there for quite a while uh, through this process. But what they do at that point is they separate, they spread out all of their rice once it's been cooled and they start putting on this mold uh, called Koji or Koji powder. And what this mold does is it changes, it converts those starches into fermentable sugars. It, 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 it changes the, um, the enzymes. And that happens over uh, several days, depending on, once again, the style of sake that you want to produce. General basic sake, they do it on the big, this big table. They let it sit there for a couple days. Um, when you get the premium sake, sometimes they're going in small little tiny boxes. Uh, and that's a way to regulate the temperature. So it's very labor intensive even at this point. So then, on, on, on Koji quick before, before you go on, cause I, I'm curious about this with, with winemaking in general, um, when you're doing fermentation, I, I think of Koji in a way as the, the yeast portion of, of winemaking, right? So we, we need yeast is what converts the sugar to alcohol when we're, uh, when we're doing traditional wine. So it, is there, and there's all sorts of different yeasts. There's natural yeast that some people use, there's, there's specific strains of yeast that people use depending on where you are. Is koji the same way? Are there different like proprietary kojis that different breweries use? Is, is, it, is it a natural thing? Like what, what, makes, what, what makes koji kind of special in that sense? If you can go a little more into that. There are three basic styles of koji. 
you have what's called black koji, and this is what they use oftentimes to make things like sochu, um, white koji, and these both of those kojis have uh, a lot of citric acid naturally to it, and it can make flavors that are a little more sour because of the citrus uh, component to it. For sake brewing, they, they typically use uh, yellow koji, which doesn't have the citric acid. It creates a more mellow flavor to it. Um, in terms of, of prep, um, uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I can't even... Proprietary. Thank you, proprietary. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't think of that for a second. Um, it doesn't happen too often uh, throughout Japan. When I go into the history of, of sake, we'll kind of jump into it. But um, people buy things from guilds. And so there's specific people that produce koji. Um, there's specific people that produce, that grow the rice. There's specific people that polish the rice. After the, um, the koji process happens, and, and you can actually taste it. If you taste koji that's um, a rice that has gone through this process, it starts to taste sweet. They do something called chubo. And chubo is your starter fermentation. So you don't just throw everything into a big vat and start fermenting. you got to start small and work your way up. This usually takes a couple days. They take the, ko the koji rice and water. They start adding different yeast strands to it. They can do different processes. The processes in terms of, of making the starter, a uh, style called Kimoto, Yamahai, or they add lactic acid. Because in brewing and grains, they don't have acid the way that grapes do or fruit does. So the chances of spoiling are very, um, it happens very easily. So you, first of all, breweries are very clean. Like, you know, they're not like wineries where people are tasting wine and spitting on the floor, spitting the wine on the floor, dumping this on the floor. Breweries are, are immaculately clean. When you go into each room in breweries, you take your shoes off and you put on a new pair of shoes so you don't transfer bacteria. Um, one way to, to keep harmful bacteria out is to create lactic acid. And there are a couple processes to do this. One is called Kimoto, one is called Yamahai. Um, they're very labor intensive. The most common way is just adding lactic acid to your sake. And that kind of creates actually that creamy, almost milky style um, or flavor profile that sake has. Um, and so that's in the, the, uh, the shubo process. And then you start fermentation. And this happens over a course of three days. You start adding a little bit of your sake rice to the koji rice and water and yeast. Um, and you let it sit for a day. And I believe it's called um, odori, which means to dance. And it's just to allow the yeast and the sugars and the koji to start to kind of dance together. And then the next day you add in more, more of your rice. And um, the process is kind of cool. It's called multiple parallel fermentation. So all of that koji rice um, and that yeast and those sugars start to convert the other rice. Because you don't just take all of your rice and make koji out of it. You only do a small amount. The rest of that rice that you, you add into it is going to start to, those enzymes are going to start to change as a chain reaction, kind of like carbonic maceration, you know, or semi-carbonic maceration making Beaujolais. The grapes on the bottom start to ferment. They burst. They, uh, the grapes on top start to ferment inside out, and it's a chain reaction. So it's the same idea there. And then depending on the style of sake you want, if you want a sake with a lot of umami to it, more of a mushroomy character, it's a warmer, faster fermentation. And if you want a sake that's more delicate, 
it's a, a cooler, longer fermentation. In the same way with wine, so like Nebbiolo, for example, it's a grape that doesn't have a lot of color, but if you want a Nebbiolo with more color and less tannin, you do um, a cold maceration. So you extract the pigment without extracting the tannin and you get a more delicate style Barolo rather than like the old school traditional rustic style. So the higher grade sake like Jumai Daiginjo or a Jumai Ginjo, it's a cooler fermentation and it's gonna be like that kind of more modern polished Nebbiolo, whereas Jumai is kind of like the rustic old school Nebbiolo. And from that point, the sakes are filtered, which all sakes are filtered. You'll see uh, Nigori sakes, they say it's unfiltered. They're, they're all filtered. It's just the filtration is a little bit less. And at this point, the brewer decides whether they want to make a Junmai style. I talked about the earlier. We have Junmai, Junmai Daiginjo, Junmai Ginjo. And then you have Honjozo. Um, with a Honjozo sake, they add a little bit of distilled spirit right before filtration. It doesn't make the sake more or less boozy because they always add water back into the sake. or 90, 99% of the time they add water back into the sake. But alcohol is more soluble than water and it brings out some of the aromas. It helps lift the aromas. Um, so if you're looking at a bottle and it says uh, just Ginjo or it just says Daiginjo, like uh, Johto makes, um, it's called One with Clocks, it's Johto Daiginjo, uh, that is a Honjozo sake. And then pasteurization and then bottling. So just to kind of recap, because it was a lot there, we start with our rice, polish our rice down, wash our rice, soak it in water, um, steam the rice, goes into the koji room, and then we start the shubo process, start our fermentation to the larger fermentation, to filtration, to pasteurization and bottle and so forth. So I don't know if that makes Why sense. didn't you just do that the first time? Because um, <laughs> I like to make things a little more confusing is, you know, but I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the basic like introduction and in how to make sake. But I mean, the story is, is much longer, obviously, um, because it's, it's a story that's taken, you know, several thousand years to, to develop. Well, it's like we say with wine, right? It's the, the history of wine in many ways is the history of the world. You know, you, uh, the, the innovations in packaging and technology and things like that cha changed wine. You know, world wars and different families fighting and so on changed wine. The papacy fighting with the king changed wine in, you know, in, in the Rhone Valley and so on. It's all, in Japan's got its own story that shapes sake. So uh, there, it's one of the, it's one of the cool things about alcohol in many ways in general is you can connect it to all these different world events throughout throughout history. Uh, you know, sake is not a hundred years old. It's a, I mean, a couple thousand, a thousand yep. at least. I mean, it's the, again, I'll, I'm going to defer to you on that, but it's got its own rich history too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of it's folkloric. Um, it is considered a uh, sacred drink. It was part of the Shinto religion. Uh, it still is sacred in Shinto religion. Um, and one of my favorite stories when I got to go here, which is super amazing to spend time in this, in this um, town, takes place in a prefecture called um, Chimani. Chimani is in the southwest of Japan, against the Sea of Japan. 
And they call this the land of myths and gods. Uh, so the backstory is that there was a god, uh, his name was Susano, and um, he was the god of the sea and the god of storms. And he had heard of this eight-headed demon serpent by the name of Orochi, who was coming into the villages and stealing, um, you know, stealing people, like basically stealing the girls and devouring them and eating them. And so what he did was he created this beverage um, that was intoxicatingly good, so much so that when he gave it to this, uh, to Orochi, the, the, the serpent demon, he fell asleep. And then at that point, Susano chopped his head off, or his eight heads off, um, killed him. And uh, at that point, that drink, which is now what we call sake, became celebrated. And that's, that was the birth of sake that I had heard. Of course, the next brewery that we went to in uh, Hiroshima said that they had a similar story, but it was from their brewery. And then the third brewery we went to said that sake came from their, from their region. So everyone has their own little, little region too. But what I think is really cool about this story, it ties into the month of October. So October is sake month. Um, and in the month of October, thousands of years ago, uh, this god, Susano, invited all the gods from all the prefectures to visit him in uh, the prefecture of Shimani in the village of Izumu. And there's a big temple in Izumu that was um, gifted to, to the gods of this region, um, basically for their heroic deeds from the sun goddess. And what they did was they came to Shimani, they came to Izumu, and they all drank the sake that Susano made, and they all got totally hammered. Um, and basically, the gods in Japan take October off. Um, in this shrine, in the center of town, it's this huge, beautiful shrine, there are 47 doors, a door for each god. And in the month of October, they all come to the village or the, the town of Izumu. They all party hard. They all sleep it off for about a month and they're on sabbatical basically um, in the month of October. And that's one reason why I think October is sake month. And it also helps kick off the brewing season, which starts in November. And it goes from November all the way until March or early April. I think we need to implement this as a generic rule for us because I do plenty at the end of September um, that would qualify me for taking the month of October off. Um, <laughs> I we should formally ask for this from, from the company. I don't know, but I, I, I <laughs> you know, going back to, you know, and relaying the story, like, hey, you know, like Manny and I, for the most part, we're the equivalent of, you know, Japanese folklore gods. Like we should yeah, be able to do this. There you go. I mean, that's for us, it would be January, right? After the holidays. Oh yeah. Be. yeah no, no, I, I, I like October. Yeah. I like October. I, I like January the way it is. Let's, let's, let's lose a month. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but I mean, I, that's a great, it's a fun folklore story and it ties into, I think, the ritual side of, of sake. But, you know, the real story is that um, sake was most likely brought into Japan. Um, it's a fly by me. Uh, it was brought into Japan or it was created in Japan shortly after rice is brought in from China. And 
most likely the Chinese were already making something similar to sake. Nothing like what we have today. 2,500 years ago was most likely though when brewing began in, in Japan. Um, but it was a style called uh, kuchikamezake, uh, which is just adorable to say. But it is not so adorable when you hear about it. It basically translates to mouth-chewed sake. This is similar to chicha that people would uh, would do up in the Andes and um, where the women like chewing potatoes and spit into a, a bucket and um, the enzymes in the saliva convert the starch to sugar. It's the same thing here. So, you know, human history is so tied together um, in terms of how we discover things. And, uh, you know, when one ape learns how to use a tool, they don't teach every other ape to do it. An ape, you know, 500 miles away learns at the same time how to do that, that tool. We do the same as humans. You can see it through political movements throughout the, the centuries, we just kind of evolve parallel. And so at the same time, they were doing that in the Americas, they were doing that in, in Japan. Um, and so basically the hunter and gatherers would go out into the forest and hunt and gather. And the people that were at the homes would um, chew the rice and spit it into containers and eventually would start to, to um, convert those sugars. And that was the original sake. <clears throat> Probably looked a little bit more like nigori too. Like there was no filtration. There was no um, polishing at all. It was just very, very basic. In the sixth century, they discovered koji mold and they started using koji mold to propagate the sugars. Um, they started actually filtering the sakis in the seventh century and making something called seshu, which is basically translates to clear sake. Still very, very different to what we're drinking today. So they would basically just take the rice, get off their spider, they would take the rice, they would um, do the whole uh, soaking process, um, steam it, add their koji, and then it would go into fermentation from there and then filtering. But there was really no polishing of the rice. They didn't have the technology to do it. Um, <clears throat> and then in the 12th century, they started doing pasteurization. Uh, we always credit Louis Pasteur for creating pasteurization. It's right in the name, but it's, uh, we were talking about this earlier. This is very Western of us. And we did this, and I meant to correct myself when we did Argentina, because we talked about, I was talking about cuisine of the old world versus cuisine of the new world, but whose cuisine? because the new world is just as old as the old world. Um, they just weren't European, you know? And uh, you know, the printing press was developed way much longer in China than it was, you know, in, in the new world. Um, so they were already pasteurizing their sakes, which is really important because sake can spoil. Once again, it doesn't have the, um, the acidity that wine has to help it age. Um, and so pasteurization really helps preserve it and helps keep it fresh. Um, and then in the Udo period was another big, big jump for sake. This is between the 14th and 19th century. Um, this is where they developed a method called Kimoto. So earlier when I talked about the Shubo, the starter fermentation, um, we want to build up uh, lactic acid to help preserve the sake. And what they would do is they would take these giant poles and they would uh, sit over the shubu with the water and the koji um, rice and the yeast, and they would move it, or the, uh, the natural ambient yeast at that point, and they would start moving it around all day long. And they would do this all day long. They would sing as they did it. It's really labor intensive. 
and it would create a pace. But as it did this, it started turning up, um, integrating natural um, lactic bacteria in the air and creating the lactic acid that it needed. So that was during the Udu period around like the 15th, 16th century. Um, it was at that point became fashionable. Uh, this was something that samurai used quite often. So one reason, so I'm drinking out of, you know, a, a portable wine glass, but you're drinking out of a wine glass. And I think it's a great way to enjoy sake. Traditionally, they use small little cups called the chocos. And the reason why they did it, um, people will say that it's because in Japan, it's a very generous culture and it's always, you know, you want to give everyone a little bit and everyone tastes and you're constantly pouring for other people. One of the stories that I heard was that um, because sake, it's a big drinking culture, sake was used in negotiations. You drank sake together. Well, if you drank a big glass of sake um, and let's say you were two warlords arguing with your samurais around you, or, you know, in modern days, you know, businessmen negotiating, you drank too much, you're going to get wasted, you're going to lose your business, or you're going to lose your head, right? And so they started drinking out of these small cups, and they became smaller and smaller. And so you start talking about your, your business deal, or negotiating with a landlord, or, you know, um, warlords negotiating. <clears throat> you do a little shot as you come closer to negotiation, and the whole point is to keep on drinking throughout, um, and always pouring for the other person. Uh, but this is, the Udo period is also when, actually in Samurai, used to drink warm sake um, right before battles in the winter. And that's how they kept their troops basically warm um, and happy. Um, but this is when the Kabuki theater was originated. Japan at this point was a very close society. Outsiders were not welcome. Um, and uh, this is when sushi really became a popular dish, especially in Tokyo. That's when Tokyo kind of became this, the hub of Japan, because before that it was Kyoto. And there was a huge sake boom. So every person, men, women, children, were drinking about seven ounces of sake a day or 200 milliliters of sake a day. Um, every single person. So there was a huge sake boom in, in the 17th and early 18th century. Um, there were you know, probably 30 to 40,000 breweries in Japan at that point. You know, and uh, that's a lot. I mean, it's 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 much much less now. I'm just trying to imagine how much sake that actually translates to a year. <laughs> Every single person drinking a minimum of seven to eight ounces of, of sake a day, multiplied over the that's just that. You know, we probably I mean, we probably do that with with booze now. We just don't think of it in in, in those terms. But it's just crazy to think about in general, especially at a time when we didn't have the modern practices that we do now, where it's not that it's easy to make, but it's a hell of a lot easier to make now than it was 500 years ago. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's the same, even that same time period, it's like the 1780s, 1790s, you know, people drank cider in the United States um, and beer because they couldn't drink the water, including, including kids. <laughs> so... Um, but I mean, it's still, it's kind of crazy to think like that, that much sake consumed by everybody. And to put in context, um, the 300 milliliters that Adam and I have in my small bottle and your small bottle, that's uh, about 10 and a half ounces. Um, which, you know, again, it's like two, two glasses of wine. 
it's not that much. Um, and in terms of alcohol content, sake is not that much greater than, than wine today. People always say, well, wine's like 12, 13%, not really anymore. Um, 13 and a half, 14, 15, California, you're talking 17% sometimes with some big heavy reds. Uh, we're about 15 to 16% in sake, so a little less. So 17% Zinfandels by, uh, by Miss Turley. <laughs> yeah. Those things are ripping, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they get the job done. In, in each era of, of Japan, um, even before the Edo period, like, there was all this transformation in terms of this product. So it started with people chewing and spitting into a container and the enzymes changing. And that's what they started with to the Meiji period, which was um, the 1860s through the turn of the 20th century. I think it was 1868 to 1912. This is the restoration period of Japan. So at that point, the borders were opened up. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created Sherlock Holmes, was huge in Japan. People fell in love with Scottish society. They fell in love with Scottish whiskey. Uh, golf became really popular in Japan. And, um, you know, that's when the first Japanese whiskeys started to come out, you know. Um, and in sake, there were a few different things that were positive and negative. So in 1868, they started taxing heavily sake, not just sake production, how much you produce. They also started taxing how long you stored it for. So the longer it was in the brewery, the longer, the bigger your tax was. Um, before this, people aged sake and oak. They um, actually, sake was always, for the most part, aged in oak or, or ceramics. They didn't do stainless steel that they do now and until the 60s, you know, the 50s or 60s when they started industrializing sake production. Um, but people also aged their sake in oak. And you still see it once in a while. It's more of a specialty sake now, but it was quite common back then. So brewers started selling their sakis immediately. And so people started developing a flavor for these sakis that were a little sweeter. They were a little less umami. Like there's a, there's a point of no return for wine uh, when, you know, you can't age wine forever. Um, most wines, majority of wines, like there's a shelf life to it. Sake has it too, but it doesn't become flat. It doesn't become matterized the way that wine does. It develops to much more umami. It loses some of the fruit aromas and it becomes kind of earthy and a little saltier. You get a lot of like soy aromas out of aged sake or mushroom. They're like super mushroomy. Um, so people started drinking sake fresh at that point. They stopped drinking um, aged sake. And in 1870, they made home brewing illegal uh, because they wanted to capitalize on taxing. I mean, that's why it's illegal to distill in the United States without a license because you have to pay taxes for it. It was the same thing there. And so people stopped brewing at home and it was just going now to kind of more mass marketed breweries and, and more industrialized breweries. And then in the turn of the 20th century, uh, during this period, I talked about the Komodo uh, method of fermentation, you know, basically trying to get those lactic acids by moving that pole around to, to bring oxygen into um, into your, your starter mash, basically, uh, to bring the um, lactic bacteria in the air, they started doing temperature control. It's a style called Yamahai. And actually, my um, small bottle called Bunraku is a Yamahai style. Bunraku actually is an ancient 
form of puppetry in Japan. So it creates a style that has a lot of acidity to it. Um, it typically is a little more, uh, much brighter. You almost get wine characteristics from a Yamaha style. I'm going to take your word for it because again, this isn't my thing. Mine's delicious, but um, again, it's it's so. Is it a little effervescent? There's a there's a slight. Well, I don't. I might not have described it as that, but it's very. Um, it's pop rocks on the tongue, right? Yeah. So it, it it's it's there, but you don't see it. Yeah, it's so. Cool. The sake you're drinking is, um, it's a brewery called Hocho Hamari. It's from Ibaraki. It's north of Tokyo. And it's actually kind of a cool story. We talked about rice earlier not being the most important characteristic in the sake. So your sake is called Watari Bune. Watari Bune is an old heirloom rice um, that people stopped using over 100 years ago because it's late harvesting, which means it's uh, typhoon season when it's harvested and they're the stalks are really tall uh, which means during the typhoon season they break um, and you have more of a chance of mold and and fungus and and um, pests and all that stuff with it so they stopped using it the brewer in the 1980s found some at um, this institute in japan or museum sake museum in japan and he was able to get some freeze-dried seeds of this rice, started planting them, and started creating it. So as far as I know, he is the only producer that makes Watari Bune in Japan. No one else uses that rice, which is kind of cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So yours is a Junmai Ginjo. So I talked earlier about polishing. You know, you have your basic um, Junmai style, which is actually what my Yamaha is. Um, where our polishes, technically Junmai can be 100%, meaning we haven't removed any rice or any of the outer rice, but usually it's between 60 and 70%, removing 30 and 40% of our rice. This is polished to 65%. Um, and that gets a lot of, a, you know, kind of a more of a savory style. When you get to your level, I think yours is polished at 55%. Um, it becomes... Uh, it's what they call ginjuka. Ginjuka is that style of sake that is um, uh, a little cleaner. It's a little fresher. It started getting a little bit more of like a strawberry um, texture to it. Um, it becomes a little sweeter and almost like a mango on the on the palate. Mango is the one thing that I that jumped out to me immediately. Another thing that jumped out immediately to me too. Before when we were talking about water sourcing. You made a comment about how the the water from this area i'm going to forget the name because i can't pronounce it because that's just what i you know i'm limited and i know i am um tends to produce um a little more body of or, or more palate coating this is for, for me this is really creamy um yeah. so like I, I was and you didn't put that idea in my head it was already there and you said i was like yes 100 percent. that's exactly what this what this is yeah, this super coating. It lingers. There's almost. It doesn't smell or taste like an oyster, but there's almost um, an oyster belly texture to it on the palate. I actually really like that sake with 
with oysters. Even though it's a it's a little sweeter, it works really well. But you know, so that style that you're drinking now, that that um, Ginjo style or Jumai Ginjo, is um, relatively new, and it was right around the same period when they started doing the Yamaha method that I'm drinking. Um, well, first of all, in 1904, they came up with the Yamaha method. Then in 1909, someone realized, hey, wait a minute, we can just add lactic acid to our sake and stop that whole process. And so that's what 90%, 95% of sakes today are, they just add lactic acid and that keeps the, the, um, the sake fresh. So you had that Kimoto style and then you had, before that, you're, it was really easy for your sake to spoil. So that's one reason why they keep the breweries really, really clean. Then the Yamaha came in 1904 and 1909, 1910, something like that. They came up, they started adding just lactic acid to it to kind of make it easier. But that's also the time when they started producing Ginjo style sakes, when they started developing the technology to polish to, um, you know, 60% to about 50, 55%. Or at least if they weren't polishing that low, the style of sake had the same style that you have there, where it's, it's more melony, it's less umami, it's less mushroomy, it's less reduced soy, and it's more like mango and melon and strawberry. And that was right around that same time. At that point in 1920, it all changed because of first of all, prohibition didn't affect just the United States, it affected Europe, it affected um, Japan as well, not to the extent, but it affected Japan. Um, there's a style of sake called uh, gosei seshu, which basically means synthetic sake. And this was a sake that um, they started using additives because we just came through the First World War. Japan wasn't part of that with us, but they had their own wars going on at the same time. Then we're heading in eventually to the Second World War. So um, sake production changed dramatically. Uh, they started reducing the amount of rice that they were using. Um, they started adding other flavors. They started adding other alcohols into the sake. They started adding more water to it. And the quality of sake just plummeted. And by the Second World War, they were rationing rice. And so it became even worse. Junmai style sakes were illegal. You had to add other things to your sake. Legally, you couldn't have a Junmai sake. So the style of sake that we have today were illegal up until the 1960s. In the mid-1960s, there was a brewery called Shinkami, not far from where your sake comes from. Shinkami means basically holy turtle. And they really wanted to re revitalize not just Junmai sake, but Koshu sake, aged sake. And so they had to pay a heavy tax to the government. They petitioned the government. The government said, you can do it, but you got to pay X amount of money to do this. And they started producing in the 60s Junmai style sakes when everyone else was still doing your basic generic, maybe what we'd call futsushu, which means table sake. In 64, when the Tokyo Olympics happened, that's when we saw the first cups of sake. They were developed specifically for the Tokyo Olympics. So people can go see the Olympics and just drink some sake in the stands. That's cool. Cup sake is awesome too. If, if you're listening and you don't know what, what we mean by cup sake, because you're thinking of the little ceramic cups that you know, you, you get it at a restaurant or whatnot you have in your house. This is the, it's basically a single serve cup of, of sake with a lid on it that you just pop the lid and you can, you can drink. Yeah. They're, they're really cool. Uh, but it's, it's, 
Yeah, it's a it's a single serve option for you. You just grab it and go. So oh, it's it's great for like to goes for restaurants. A lot of restaurants have been using them quite a bit. I've had some retail stores where they stack them up next to their counter and just like grab and go sake. And if you're in the bullet train in Japan, and um, there's a certain point, you know, let's say you're leaving Kyoto and you're going up to Tokyo, someone's going to come down the cart or come down the aisle with a cart. There'll be magazines. There'll be, um, you know, some little food options, little sandwiches. They'll have beer and they'll have sake. And you'll get little, you can buy little cups of sake on the trains because that's what one does in a civilized country. <laughs> they have a, they have alcohol vending machines in Japan. They do. So they definitely do. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's a pretty fun place to go. Um, and so just for the record, everyone knows, so I just wanted to be clear. This was not a trip that I won, that then when I left, Manny was allowed to go on after finishing in second or third. I, I won this one he, fair and square. He won this one outright. And if I had been with the company at the time, he still would have won the trip out. So. Well, I just, you know, someone would say, hey, I want some Sonoma Contreras. Like, you want sake? Sure. I would just send. So basically, we get all these, you know, for, for those of you that, that don't, you know, aren't in our industry. I'll, I think we're up to 13 people now we get these incentive trips. And so when, when we got to go to Argentina together, it was whoever sold the most. When I got to go to Japan, it was whoever sold the most sake. And then you get to go visit breweries. And it was honestly the most amazing, it was the best experience because usually when you go on these trips, you kind of go as a group. You know, there's like a couple sales reps, a sales manager, and it's great because the VPs have their company cards and so they pay for everything. It's awesome. It's almost like you're not allowed to pay for anything. In fact, I remember when we were in Argentina, I bought everyone some Fernets and um, our boss, Seabass, uh, mad. Was, yeah, was mad that I paid for it. Like, no, I want to buy it for you. <laughs> so, but here I was kind of on my own. I went with a group of people, but I didn't have people that I worked with. So I had to, I did a lot of exploring myself and it was, it was incredible. You know, it's a fun experience to do. So yeah, that's why I got to go to Japan. I begged, borrowed and stole my way. And I begged everyone, you know, to buy sake from me and it worked. <laughs> and now I know all these really stupid stories that nobody cares about. 13 people care. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if you count me, fourteen. So. There you have it. There you have it. And Ryan's mom. Right. That's right. Hi, Ryan's mom. <laughs> Fifteen. We'll post um, more videos soon. We promise. But but I think like you know I mean in in terms of like the story of sake where it came from, you know it's it's like the story of every other thing in the world. Someone to just wake up and say I want to make champagne. Someone to just wake up and say I want to make fine you know bordeaux someone didn't just wake up and say i'm gonna make a rocket ship you know there are all these different stories and movements and moments and and politics and policies and taxes and all these things that get us to where we are there have been thousands and thousands of people through thousands of years to develop what we have to take the style of sakis that we have today are different than the sakis that we would have seen 40 years ago there's a lot of show sakis um, that actually started in, in, around the 19, 1915 or so. And um, where they do this every year, these big competitions of brewers. And so the style of sake that you have, or my Jumai Daigenjo, we'll talk about in a second, that style is really 
new and it was only for competition. It wasn't for us to sit here and talk about it. It was, you tasted it at the competition, someone got an award and that was it and they didn't make it anymore. And then everyone else got, you know, the entry level stuff. So, you know, it's been a real long road to get to where we are today. And it ties back into our conversation with Chiro way back in April or May when we talked about traditional wines of Italy. And he had the great point, how far back do you want to go? Because we can maybe go back and drink the wines of the Romans, but we would probably spit them out because yeah. they were, I'm sure, disgusting. And, you know, the same, the same goes for sake, you know probably being there with a, with a Shogun warrior or a samurai would be exciting, you know, in that process, but to sit there and sip it and enjoy it, a different story, our palates change. And one reason, so actually I'll talk about my last sake. This is called Kirinzan. This comes from Nigata, actually. These both come from Nigata Soto Junmai and Kirinzan Junmai Daigencho. Um, they get a ton of snow here. They get 30 feet, I think I mentioned earlier, 30 feet of snow a year. Um, the snow water is really delicate and um, uh, the water is really delicate and you get a style that's called um, kiri or water-like. They're really dry, they're really fresh, they're really bright and, and um, delicate style sakes. But um, the style of the Jumaidai Ginjo really began in like the 1990s and the 80s when Japan went through its own boom of technology. Um, people were getting paid more. Uh, people wanted to leave working on the farms and go get an education, go work in a firm rather than a factory. And because when you work in a factory or you work in a farm or you work as a laborer, the things you eat and drink need to be a little more direct. They need to have more fat to it. They need to be have more sugars. And those sweeter style sakis from the 70s are the sakis that had all the additives to it were probably, um, you know, or sweeter and people needed that sugar. But as people started working in offices, firms rather than factories, they wanted sakis that were much more delicate because they didn't need that rich flavor. And that's when the Jumai Daiginjos that we have today that I'm actually hearing on I'm drinking now, that's when that style of sake developed, you know, and that has to do with, I mean, we can tie it to the second world war after the, you know, the. The, the tragedies of, of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you know, they lost their military, but then they invested, they were able to invest into their businesses and technology. And that created, the, that changed the trajectory of Japan and in turn changed the sakis that we're drinking and enjoying today. The, the diversity in sake is just like the diversity in, in wine, in beer, and so on. So if you've had sake where you're like, nah, this doesn't, this doesn't do it for me, that's not going to mean that there's no sake out there that, that you really enjoy. Um, you know, maybe you only like, you know, the stuff that you, you drop in a Budweiser and that, that, that's okay. Uh, or maybe you want those more delicate, refined flavors. Maybe you didn't know that that type of sake exists. Um, but it's out there. They're cool. They're unique. It's just as diverse, and I mean, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I didn't, honestly, I actually, many will can confirm this. I shot him a text a couple days ago and said, what should I pull? Because <laughs> I like, I don't, I, I don't know what I, what I should drink. And I'm pretty sure he used my wine palette to suggest this, because this thing is bomb. Um, I could drink this thing all day, but it, it's the same thing. You can, 
you can find something that, that, that you'll enjoy, or if not, you'll, you'll figure it out and, and Saki's not your thing. But well, absolutely. You know, I, I just, just to jump in, I, I did, a um, I was with one of our colleagues yesterday, this new opening for a new restaurant up near, um, Raleigh outside of Ipswich in the North shore. The, uh, woman we were tasting with did not like sake and but they're you know she's part of the beverage program and she's developing a really cool wine cocktail menu but she doesn't really know sake or rather um and it was a little challenging for her to find one that she liked but she found one that she liked and and she was like oh my god this is amazing and she kept on going back to that and going back to that and when you find that gateway in then you find something that's, so you start with, that was the Soto Jumai Daigenjo. So it was like a kind of premium sake. And then from there, maybe you pedal backwards a little bit to what you're drinking. And then from there, you pedal backwards into, you know, different sakes. And that's really how the flavors develop. You know, when I started drinking sake, I was waiting tables. I was working in restaurants. We were, um, we didn't drink water throughout the shift. We pounded a couple beers at the end of the day. You know, we were dehydrated maybe we did a shot um it's not my dog maybe maybe we did a shot and um then we went to chinatown and we went to go drink hot sake and sushi and it was not good sake it was cheap sake and we did it like shot i like the flavor but we did it like shots and we didn't know how to drink it you know and then you learn about like chilling sake and, and having which by the way hot sake is amazing and i mentioned it earlier the samurai would give it to their to their warriors before they would actually go out and fight in the winter and when it is cold outside doing a shot of hot sake and the walking outside feels really really good but it depends on the style so like a junmai style like the soto junmai that i have or the the bunraku junmai works really well warm and then when you get to the style you have the Wataribune or what I'm drinking now, the Kiranzan Junmai Daigenjo, that's when you want to get to chilled sakis because that's when you really maintain the, the integrity and the aromas. But I want to talk, jump back just for a moment. We talked about, you know, comparing to wine or, or using your wine explanations. And I've had a lot of conversations with my friend Marina from the WSET and um, my friend Alyssa, who's opening uh, a cool sake bar later this month called the Koji Club, you know, they're very much against using wine terminology to, to describe sake because they want it to be specifically sake. And I really respect and, and appreciate that. But when I worked with a gentleman by the name of Otaru, who is the importer for the Kiranzan, he wanted to learn wine terminology to use that in describing sake uh, because there is an application um, and especially if you're not used to drinking sake, to start talking about the, f the flavor profiles. Because usually when they describe sake, it's slightly sweet, it's umami, uh, it's dry, it's, you know, moderate acidity. And it's, it, the descriptions are very, they're not pedestrian, they're not mundane, but, but they are a little more straightforward. Because uh, culturally, it's not part of sake conversation. Where in wine, we talk about, you know, what when you made this comment when we talked about you know psalms and tasting with sommeliers and i smell cherry well what kind of cherry but that's part of what we do we get a little we go down down the rabbit hole with sake they don't and so you know i've had these conversations with them where you know i'm going to throw wine terminology out 
and you can hit back a little bit and we'll find somewhere in the middle where it's a happy medium you know where sake is its own thing it's its own reality but there's an application for people that people that don't know sake that relates to wine but yeah it's i totally get the idea of wanting to have them separate and distinct because sake is its own thing that is distinct we just walked through the entire process in history that it is unique it's not wine but for someone like me who knows a little bit but is nation in the grand scheme of things when it comes to you know getting into sake uh, i need the comfort <laughs> of the wine terminology to understand what i'm doing and yeah. it, it's the same concept as when you you know when someone walks into a restaurant that is French or Italian or Japanese or Chinese and the menu is all in a different language and you don't speak it, you look for things that you recognize that you're comfortable with to, to order because you're, you're comfortable, you understand it. It's the, you have to develop that, you know, knowledge base to understand everything else that's there and then feel comfortable ordering it and feel comfortable talking about it. It's the same thing. So I, I totally get that point of view too, but if we're trying to relate to people who have no idea, again, like me, who don't have a huge idea of what we're talking about, it just adds that layer of comfort. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sending you, we're going to actually finish. We don't normally do this. We're going to, I want to finish with a separate song. Ooh, um okay. just because same same artist also from kishibashi but this is a song that my my uh youngest dylan is and i hear it we got him a little mp3 player for his uh birthday <clears throat> we were gonna get like some kind of like spotify thing that he can go online and just like stream music but i really like the I, the process when you're a child of hearing the same songs over and over again i think it's a better way to learn it of course, as a parent, hearing the same songs over and over again can be highly infuriating. Thankfully, um, baby shark, do, 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 do. <laughs> thankfully, I, I like the song that I just sent you uh, a lot. So it's Excellent. it's also from Kikibashi. Um Yeah, so that's that's kind of sake. I mean, I know I kind of went off on a tangent, and I hope it I hope it made sense. Um, that's the idea. That's the whole point, is we go yeah. off on a tangent when we do this. Yeah, that's true. True that. Um, so I picked Japan. Where do you want to go? So I, I have a suggestion um, for the next one. Uh, that's okay. a little different than what we normally do, given the, the time of year that we're going into and, and so on. I think next time, instead of picking a region per se, mm -hmm. we should talk about wine and food. Thanksgiving yeah, yeah. coming up and you know it's always uh it's all it's a huge wine holiday for you know it, it's Thanksgiving is not necessarily a religious celebration from from family so everyone not everyone but a, a large swath of people seem to celebrate it my dog is disagreeing you can hear her in the background I think she's, she's agreeing she's adamantly opposed to Thanksgiving yeah. or for it one of the two who knows but I think that uh, and we had a lot of questions, especially in our business, you know, what, what, what are rules? What, what can I buy? What can I do? You know, what goes well with this or that or, or so on. And there's a lot of rules that make sense, rules that don't make sense that are out there. Just, there's just a lot out there. And I think, you know, maybe we could give our, our two cents for our non-expert opinion and see if anyone will buy into it. I, I dig it. I, and it's, you know, it's one thing actually I wanted to talk about. 
Um, but for some reason, I got so nervous today. Um, but also like food and sake, like where, what do we pair uh, with sake if you don't like sushi? Sure. Sake works with everything. It works with everything because um, we're not talking about, with wine, we talk about, and we'll talk about this, you know, the next time we're talking about structure usually, right? We're talking about acidity, not mouthwater feel, tannin, the mouth pucker feel, uh, the weight of the wine. Um, is it sweet or dry? And sweet is not a flavor. Sweet is, a, is structure, right? It's the sugar. How do these tie into what we're eating? That's how we typically start pairing food and wine. Sake, it's about the flavor. So, you know, sake is more mushroomy. Maybe I'm going to do like um, the Bunraku. Yamaha I'm drinking or was drinking mushroom pizza. Mushroom pizza. It's it's amazing because there's umami and MSG in Parmesan and in tomato and tomato sauce. And it plays with the way um, the umami sense in our palate activates with MSG and where we salivate. So like wine, we salivate back here. Sake, we, sal we salivate in the front as we do with mushrooms and soy and all these different things. So, um, you know, your sake, we already said oysters. Um, the Kiranzan, yeah, we do that with sushi. It's really delicate, you know, um, something light and simple or just with a beautiful sunny day outside. It's the best pairing ever. Awesome. All oh, right. Man. We should do this. Yeah, let's do it. So let's, um, should we lead out with a little bit of Q&A from Kishibashi? Absolutely. All right. Let's hear it. This guy makes cool music, man. He's, he's great. He's, um, he's a super awesome musician. He's a really nice guy, too. You know, like, he's... He's responded to, like, my uh, music line pairing videos. Um, uh, we got to FaceTime because I did a couple songs so we facetimed um i tried to show my my finger picking technique which is really hard to do when you're used to doing something for so long um i fumbled more than because we worshipped in sin for fun to melting candles against the Modern angels, they broke wings in the wind for what? Decorated by man and time, ornamental and quite divine, manifested in the commitment to flame.
twilight they danced and played The fireflies they go light like gray In the dreaming we struck each other Probably will my 